Welcome back to the Hustle Podcast. This is Anthony Armendaris, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Sanchez. And we are lucky today to be able to speak with Kevin Hawkins, who is in town from the Netherlands. Kevin is the director of product design at Book Club, an online platform that brings together authors and readers. He is in town on a, I don't know, he'll tell us while he's here, but we figured we would take advantage of him being in a in a close enough time zone to finally get on the show because we've been trying to get Kevin on here for a while now. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Tony. Hey. Glad to be here. Yeah. I am in town. I am in Salt Lake City right now for the week on business. I came into the States a couple weeks ago on a vaccine tourism because the EU is a little bit behind on the shots. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to be home. Good to see friends uh, safely. And... Yeah, I recently joined bookclub.com late last year. I lead our product design team. Uh, really, really excited because I have an alternative path to learning and education because I didn't go to school or I did, but I didn't like it. Um, and we're doing education through the lens of meeting experts, talking to people, community learning, and really exciting video content, not just, you know, read and learn by yourself. So that's what I'm doing now. I live in Amsterdam for the last two and a half years, but I'm originally from Washington, D.C. That's that's really cool. Is your team at, at Book Club distributed or are they all based in, in the States? It's full remote. So I think we are at six countries, 14 states. Dang, that's cool. Yeah, I love it. Are you used to remote teams and building remote teams or is that relatively new for you? The majority of management is used to it. So the founders founded Degreed. Degreed is in uh, Leiden, in the Netherlands. They're also in Salt Lake City. They're also in a couple other places. Mm. I work with Emily Campbell, came from Envision, you know, famous remote company. Mm-hmm. And I used to be a remote freelancer. So I have, yeah, I'm, I like it. It's a nice mixture of like little hubs we have, but also we have people in Dubai and people in Chile. So we have oh, nice so, little, so um, you deal with different time zones all the time then? Yeah. So totally. that's, that's not, you're not a stranger to different time zones then? Nope. You know, you said you started back back last year. I was just curious of how that was getting started like that, because obviously you're we, we were in full. I think you said late in the year 2020. So we were all like full, full yeah. fledged remote at that point. So and then coming into the design director position was putting together a team, an objective for you at that time, or was it kind of integrating into the, the remote culture that's already in place? Yeah, I got in really early. So for book club, I was employee number seven. I was really lucky to know my boss already. So Emily Campbell is where I report to. And we've been friends for five, six years since we met at Epicurrent. So it was nice to have already known someone, especially someone I work with directly. I met a couple people in New York before on a holiday trip. So I knew about half the team when I joined. We're now up towards 45 people. So now not so much anymore. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, How how is that compared to your your last role at booking, how large was the design team over there? Yeah. So booking has a very large footprint for a rather smaller tech company. So about 20,000 employees, I think about 6,000 in tech. Oh my gosh. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, but they have the same footprint as Google, which is impressive. That's ridiculous. But That's the ridiculous. Design that, team that, that, is, I just, that just, that just <laughs> like pinged in my head. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Their scale, the scale of like each, each designer's work touches, some crazy multiple of five to five to 10 million people. Wow. So yeah, it's a large, large uh, effort to make that work. My team at booking was six people. The overall booking design team, I would say is probably closer to 400 people. Wow. Well, what a, what a change, right. To go from something that large to on the ground floor or something new like that. That sounds like a, an exciting new adventure. I've been looking forward to it in the midst of a big um, global pandemic. I'm, I'm really curious, since you said this earlier, like when we first started, you were saying that you you didn't have a normal, uh, whatever that means, path into design. I was super curious about that too. Uh, yeah, tell, tell us more about that, man. Yeah, definitely. I have weird motivations, I like to say. Uh, so I'm originally from Washington, D.C. I grew up around all of the politics and the military and a lot of um, science and nonprofits are in D.C. as well. And Maryland, which is the state just above D.C., is known for uh, biotech. So I did a lot of freelance work really early on to just like make money as a kid. Instead of like delivering newspapers, I made websites and flyers and business cards for businesses nearby. 
And when it came time to go to college, I thought, oh, I'm sure this exists. Like there would be something similar at the time. It wasn't mm-hmm. called UX, but mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'll go to HCI or I'll do something yeah. that's similar. And everything was science and computer science only. It was really hard to get a mixture of design education plus computer science plus anything related to business or so I ended up dropping out two years in because I worked full time for this finance company. And I said, screw this. I'm going to go work with science nonprofits and help real people with real problems and never turn back. How old were you when you started doing web design or front end development? I guess that's as I understand what's where you started. Yep. Um, I started doing front end development probably closer to 12. It was mostly just for myself, my mom, uh, sports teams I was on. Uh, it got more formal around 13, 14, because I made like an official business and did invoices and taxes. <laughs> and then I converted into UX at 16, uh, <laughs> my first like full-time job. Nice. So your your first full-time job in, in UX field was at the age of 16? Yep. I worked wow. for the Society for Neuroscience. <laughs> what, were you, what were you doing what at that time? Yeah, what were you doing at that time? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing their their marketing to product funnels. So dynamic emails to non-members, universities, students, uh, scientists, trying to get them to use like the software that the organization had built to uh, be a part of the community, to come to the national conference every year. But I kind of worked my way out of, out of my own job because I automated a lot of the (laughs) dynamic email sending. Nice. (laughs) And then I said, wait, I can do your website and I can also do like all of our campaigns and I can also update your software. And so then I was there for a while doing random projects. So wait, you didn't, you didn't just tell them it's going to be, Oh, yeah, that request is going to take me a couple of days. You just hit a button and then you just like hang out. (laughs) There were moments. You're like, uh, this is before, I don't know if you know about the mass like conglomeration of marketing software, but there used to be 50 different players in the email business. And now there's like six, but I, I like predicted who was going to buy everyone. Like Marketo ended up buying everyone. So I like integrated everything that Marketo was going to do so that when we got acquired by them, uh, the software that we used, nothing would change. And I ended up doing a lot of leadership stuff really early without knowing it. And that's how I got into I guess my role as a consultant, which I was for a couple of years before I got back into traditional design teams. What were you doing at 16 years old, Tony? Oh man, you don't even want to know. I, was, I don't know. I was outside <laughs> probably doing something. Definitely not anything as impressive as that. <laughs> man, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, that's like, amazing. I, always, like, I, I hope that, <laughs> I hope that, uh, that younger folks that I hope younger folks are listening to this show hear that because the, the future is yours. And you, Kevin, you grabbed it and you defined it for yourself. You defined your future really, really early on. And you defined your success really, really early on. And I think that's super impressive. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I, I always thought it was interesting. Like when I entered the, the field, I was 21. And I thought, I, you know, I, I, I felt like the, the young noob on the team. I can't imagine what it's like to be, you know, that, you know, that young on the team. Or, or I mean, were you accepted? Uh, in terms of your your age at, at the time with your first job, a couple of things played to my advantage, right? So being from a Navy and diplomat family, you get taught really early on how to speak in uh, rooms full of adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like decorum and like how to not speak and how not to rustle feathers, and so I got really used to that, and so that was helpful for getting into interviews and being able to like hold my own and talk about what I thought and my opinions. The second part that helped was me being like six three <laughs> at fifteen. <laughs> so people thought I was older. Nice. The uh, my version of that is gray hair. Gray hair <laughs> like helped me look like I was okay to be in, be in the room. Okay, I'll, I'll a seasoned designer. Yeah, I will accept my gray now. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do I understand it correctly that you filed a patent at the age of ten? Yes, it's a really funny story, but yes, I did. There's another funny story I was hoping to tell later, so maybe we can break this conversation up with a couple funny stories whenever, yeah, here and there, whenever, you, if you want to tell it, love to hear it. Mm-hmm. 
No. I, I just, have a, I kind of have a question related to a couple of things you were talking about just a second ago, because I also had slightly of a non-traditional like uh, entry into at least what I'm doing now related to design. And one thing that I'm really, really like passionate about is the, is the journey of people um, towards what they're doing currently and then where, where they, where they go after that. Mm-hmm. And the question is kind of related to expectation versus like reality in, in terms, and, and I guess what I'm getting at there is like, did you have this like going into design, you know, capital D, little d, whatever you want to call it um, at that time, did you have this like preconceived idea of what a designer is uh, or what a designer should be? Or were you just kind of <laughs> making it up as you go? This is a nice question. I've never been asked this. So my mom's a fashion designer and growing up, my dad was Navy. My mom's a fashion designer. She used to be a nurse. There was so much rigidity. And then like, she had this moment in her life where she was like, I'm going to go and have fun with my career and left medicine behind and became a designer. So that's what I thought design was like, mm. this like free spirited yeah. artisanal, mm. no follow the rules. Like your inspiration happens in the middle of the night and you run downstairs and you draw a sketch yeah. kind of thing. And I knew I wasn't that. <laughs> so I always told myself, oh, I'm more of a scientist. Like, mm. I actually, my, my, my website, my tagline on my website, the first thing you see is a science for simple, because that was my approach to design. So I came through it to computer science. I was in front-end development. I was doing marketing. And I kind of framed it as, oh, we're doing, we're using computer science to create an appealing offer that makes people convert. Mm-hmm. And that was really all I thought about design. And then I got into the field of usability uh, t- studies when I was working at the NGOs and working with JAWS and people with disabilities and actually making the internet more accessible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my eyes opened up and I said, why am I spending all my time doing landing pages <laughs> when I could be doing this? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I think that like that, the point of, you know, the free spiritedness of, of a, of a designer, I think that that's a romantic part uh, and not mm-hmm. that that shouldn't be uh, celebrated. But I think that, um, you know, over the short period of time that I've been doing this, I think that the tangibility and, and, and tactical approaches to thinking strategically as you approach design and business problems and, and outcomes is, is a much bigger part of that than I had ever really imagined. So, yeah, I was just, just curious about that. Cause I think that when I talk to folks, I say younger, um, in, in terms of, maybe age, but also experience that there sometimes is this like expectation of the way, you know, what I'm supposed to say, what I'm supposed to do versus just kind of having that free spirit of, of exploring and, and getting to know your craft and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I'm just curious. Good question. One of the things that you mentioned that that's inspiring to you right now is finding creativity by reducing exposure to work in tech at large and, and getting out and returning with a fresh mind. I think that's something that's interesting to me because it's, it's clearly something that you're interested in. You, you, you know, you, you travel a lot, you know, you've chosen adventures that taken you different countries and stuff like that. But, you know, we in the midst of the pandemic, maybe that's been a little bit harder, but can you talk a little bit about why you think that it's in, it's valuable to reduce exposure to each other at work? And to get out and what that can bring back into the the work when you when you do when you do come back from adventures yeah i think like a lot of people i used to throw myself at my work to distract from things going on like difficulties in like life or just you know it was a good outlet for my creativity or any of my emotions and i think i did my best work when i had stuff going on because i could go to work forget about it mm-hmm. and just like really execute mm-hmm. the workaholic tendencies crept in very quickly <laughs> uh, so i started to say okay if i'm gonna do work and i'm a person who never takes sick leave i need to take vacations i need to actually plan them out take them and it needs to be something that gives me a new perspective on life I used to always joke that I would travel to places that dance differently. Mm. Um, so it has to be a culture that has a significantly different, like social scene. Um, so, you know, like uh, piazzas in Italy or in South Southern European countries, 
like you get a very different look of, at people watching and interactions. You can go to squares in Asia and get a completely different look on prioritization and like work life balance and all this. So those are the places I've always like opted to go to when I'm going on vacation. And I purposely go to like not look at their tech, not look at their software, their design mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. but actually look at their people. So the pandemic has been harder for me because I think my creativity has gotten worse since I'm just staring at my own designs all day. Um, Or, you know, my friends who work at Twitter looking at their, you know, tweets are great. But I think I have like an hour timer set to every app on my phone at this point so I can get off my phone uh, within three hours Mm -hmm. at any time. How do you help the designers in your career, various jobs? Like, how do you help the designers that you mentor or that report up to you find that time to do the the same thing? Yeah, I think there's a growing culture of like having 20% time. I actually like 20% time not being additional work. Like I encourage anyone who I work with, uh, I, I also teach UX design at university. I say, if you're looking for inspiration to a new way to solve a problem, don't just look at the competitors and other people solving the problem. Go look at just the people having the problem, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So if we're going to find a better way to handle life, and that's what all of these problems are really about, then we should be better at knowing that life. We should just go live that life. That's really deep. I like that. So finding the time, (laughs) I mean, it's, it sounds profound, but it's, it's honest, right? So if you spend all your time in writing mode, you're not going to be suddenly amazing at being an editor. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to switch modes. We have to get out of the mindset of looking for problems to solve, looking for solutions and just go like have life and have the problems find us. And so making that time for me is like find a passion, find a thing you're curious about or don't know or you're f- afraid of any of these kind of inputs and dedicate time towards that thing. A lot of my road trips started out from my fears. So I have a fear of heights or I used to. Mm-hmm. So I would just keep going to canyons and just sitting on the edge of them. <laughs> so the Grand Canyon and I have like a nice, <laughs> a nice bonding moment with me. So you're just, uh, you're just like, trolling yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, very cool. So my, my perspective on life is I avoid tall things nice. and towers and any monuments that have stairs. Let's change that this week and take a week off and go sit in a, a massive hole in the ground. So that's why I saw you at the Grand Canyon Epicurrence. <laughs> that was the second reason. Yeah, I hadn't been back since my... <laughs> My fear of heights uh, adventure. <laughs> All right. Uh, since Epicurrence came up, and since I know you're interested in tier design, I, I was hoping, if you still think it's funny, if you could tell everyone the story about how people in uh, Amsterdam have jobs where they cut up couches. The, <laughs> you're going to have to If you still me. think that's funny. <laughs> I haven't been able to stop thinking about that since we talked about it. I, I got a giggle out of it. I just never heard about that before. Okay, so I actually remember this vaguely, but can you remind me the cut up couches <laughs> reference? Yeah, so we were, we're at Epic Currents, and we were, you know, we were at the one of the social gatherings, and you were you're talking to a few people about what it was like trying to furnish your your new apartment, your new home. Oh, yes, and you, you're explaining that like this, uh, you were trying to just get a couch, but you didn't realize that when you got a couch, you had to also hire someone to cut it up for you. Oh, jeez reassemble it in the house i've never heard anything like that so i was just wondering if there's you know if if there's not we'll just edit this part out but i i thought that was hilarious (laughs) yeah there's no segue into this topic i don't even know how it came up that day i i know that amsterdam like that the eu is more dense than america everything's apartments or condos as we call it so the dutch have a unique sense of architecture because everything used to be grain silos or just like storage so i have a top two floor apartment which means that i have attic space like it was meant to just be storage so they're actually not they're not great staircases that go to that floor there's no really good way to get a bed or anything large into these apartments so i had to take apart my couch and then have a hook and pulley system and a mechanical elevator outside of the house pull everything up to the fourth floor um, but several things didn't fit, so I had to cut up my couch. <laughs> so that's that is the story. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. I would have never, uh, yeah. I, I, like that. I wouldn't have ever imagined that that that's a thing. Yeah, I mean, 
sometimes people walk in my house, because like, I, I guess I saw slightly American standards. Some of the Europeans who walk in will say, oh, this is a beautiful place. But how did you get this couch in here? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're looking at the window that they think it came out of or came through. And they're like, there's no way that this couch or this bed or this table got through this. <laughs> and I say, you know, trigonometry is my favorite subject because if you turn things at an angle, they magically fit where they usually don't. Oh so gosh. that's been <laughs> the story of furnishing my apartment. <laughs> All right. Thanks for, thanks for going on that, on that tangent. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your, your new role. So you said that you joined as employee number seven and at the companies in the, in the 40s now. What's the state of the design org and how are you building that team? And maybe you could even talk a little bit about how you, your viewpoints on building diverse and inclusive teams, especially now diverse and inclusive and distributed teams. Yeah, I think it's really nice, actually. I think going for distributed teams being more of norm now is actually helping with diversity. We, we have a really, really great team culture. The company is now, like I said, about um, almost 50 people. Uh, we're super remote. The majority of our leadership is female. We have people from 16 nationalities. Nice. Um, That's awesome. It's just, it's natural. It's natural. Everyone gets along. It, we're very transparent, like speak your mind, don't hold back culture. So people feel empowered to speak up. And that's been really great because we have, like we're an education company when it comes down to it. Mm -hmm. So it's good that we model what we preach. Like people should learn by being exposed to new ideas and new concepts. So diversity of thought is equally as important as gender diversity or sexual diversity or any of these other mm -hmm. um, ways to make an inclusive team. Mm -hmm. The design team is small right now. Uh, so it's myself. I report into Emily Campbell, who's head of product and one of the co-founders. I just recently got Maxime, uh, who is known as Round on Twitter, to join. And then Chris Cannon as well, um, who is from Utah. Oh, oh cool. Yep. Yeah, that's that's yeah. really cool. I mean, yeah, that makes sense, right? Back to your other point about going to places where people dance differently, right? I mean, I'm, obviously <laughs> that makes a big difference with diversity on teams too, right? Like having people from, you know, all these different, you know, that have different ways of, of life and different perspectives on it. I, you know, like you, and you see a lot of tech companies doing this in different ways, right? Like some people are just like, oh, you know what? We're just completely remote. That's cool. Divert. Like we're, we'll hire the best people wherever we can find them. And then you, maybe some of the bigger companies are like, oh, well, yeah, well, we're remote too, but you kind of have to be hired in one of these time zones. And one of those time zones then dictate like what work stream you work on and stuff like that. Yep. I, either way, like, in either case, like definitely more experience in, in hiring remote teams than I have. Like my question for you is for design managers out there or company owners out there that are on the verge of trying to make some decisions about how they they do these things, what what advice would you give them about like how to make these things work across very disparate time zones and where people can still like live the life they want to live and have their own personal space and freedoms, but still align on in, in times where it's important to collaborate, like, you know, the, the share, the occasional workshop or the share out, like how, how, what, what's your perspective on those things? Yeah, I really like the way it's done here at book club. And I, I've been exposed to remote a couple of different times. I used to be a consultant for PricewaterhouseCoopers and lived across the country from my clients and my teams. And so that was remote in a very different way. This time around, it's a lot better. And some of the key differences are the policies. So mm. we have unlimited PTO. And I, I like to say like the non-Silicon Valley flavor of it, where like you actually can take the time off. The policy is you take you give twice as much notice as the time you're taking off. If you're taking off a day, you give two days notice. If you're mm -hmm. taking off a week, you give two weeks notice. Mm -hmm. It works really well, especially when you combine it with uh, localized holidays. So instead of saying, hey, these are our 12 holidays for the year, knowing you're going to have a diverse team in different countries, you have to let them tell you which holidays that they actually acknowledge and what days they fall on. And therefore, there is a, a lot better uh, work-life balance for them versus them only getting off the Christian holidays in America mm -hmm. where they don't actually have any benefit for being off on that, that Thursday in Easter you know, in their country. That's interesting. I like that twice as much as the time you're taking off policy. Mm -hmm. That's really like 
simple and easy to understand, which is like what you want any policy to be, right? Exactly. Like easy to memorize, easier to enforce. And it's not, it's not, you know, dogmatic. It does just make sense. It's kind of close to what naturally happens on a, good, a team of good communication. It's like, oh, hey, next week I need to take off. And like usually that happens like a week before. And if you're taking off the entire week, you usually know about that. But, you know, at least 10 days before, unless it's sudden. Yeah. And even if it's sudden, the policy allows for that. Because, you know, if you need to take time off, like we're a company that encourages you to take time off. The other thing that works really well is having your tools specified. I think people have fallen into this trap where, oh, I know Slack is great. I know this is this tool is amazing and Notion for that. But if you don't specify what goes where and what's appropriate and what should be asynchronous versus, you know, hop on a call to talk about this, mm-hmm. the tools end up working against you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where Slack becomes, you know, even less manageable than email because you don't know where things are. There's 15 private DM groups or three channels that you don't know where to find stuff in. So that's a big one. Just a lot more operations, oper- uh, design ops organization, but also just overall company operations, just clarifying how you like to do things. And then my last one is making choices based on outcomes, not intent. And mm. this is a bigger philosophy principle for me. I think we oftentimes talk about design hiring or even diverse hiring across all industries. And it's always like, oh, but you know, who applied or we've sent it out to these certain groups or we've partnered with a certain organization. But if the outcomes are all the same or the outcomes are, you know, negligible, like 1% differences, you know, we, I try to say it's the same way you judge design. You can say, oh, we have a version two of this product, but if you lose customers, you're judged on the outcome. You're not judged on your attempt. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. change the the attempt. Try something new. Hmm. That's pretty big for me. You know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time because I think up until the pandemic, you know, our company has pretty much only hired people from the Austin area. I think we just weren't thinking about, you know, like any of this stuff, right? I'm actually, the the one thing that I'm glad about the pandemic is it kind of, it was a good sort of reminder that like there's other ways you can do things. And it's not that I didn't realize that, it's just I forgot that, you know? And I, yeah, the other point that you mentioned about the, the the religious stuff is actually something that I, I'm really glad you said that actually because I was think I think about that a lot because I think like in the states like I don't know if you can remember, but it's almost <laughs> a given that you're off for Christmas, right? But right. N- not everyone's Christian, and you know like sometimes I you know, like I wonder about that, you know, like how you how you treat that, and I think that what you're describing gives people the the flexibility to kind of choose like, like the things that they, that are important to them and their family and their, their community. Yeah. I think it's really important that we realize that everyone has different needs and there's like, I'll give a lot of props to David Blake. He's the CEO uh, about the way he interviewed, which was needs based. Like it wasn't, this is the role and this is what we need from the role. And are you a fit for this need list? It was, what do you think you need to do the best if you were to get this role? Hmm. And that changes that the entire conversation. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's completely flipping it over altogether. Wow. So, you know, the three of us, you know, we've been in the business for a while. You know, we, we've, we've been consultants. We, we've worked in jobs where we in with stakeholders that are in different countries and time zones, but like, what do you think about the, uh, le- you know, less seasoned designers out there who aren't right. And let's say hypothetical scenario, like, Oh, well, I mean, it's not hypothetical. It's real, right? Like you got a, you got design, you got designers that report up to you and you're, you're based in the Netherlands and you know, one, one of them is in Salt Lake city and someone's in, I don't know, Austin. How do you keep them from burning them themselves out? And what I mean is like, all things considered, like great people want to rise to the occasion, right? They want to be able to take time off and do their work, but they also want to make you, their boss, happy and be available for workshops and stuff like that. And without any guardrails, or even if they don't know how to do it, like how do you, how can how can a designer keep themselves from managing all those things and the time zones for meetings without burning themselves out? That's a really good point. I think there's a lot of basic human desires that fall into work uh, problems, right? So the desire to kind of always be your best Mm -hmm. should not be a requirement at work. And I think it's one that we all subconsciously know, but it falls into what can I do that, you know, 
it's not what you're assigned to do. It's not, you know, what you have as a priority, but you can help. And therefore you're always trying to help. I, I actually guard against that. Hmm. You know, I set aside everyone's working hours and I put it in their calendars. I have their calendars synced to Slack. Their Slack will automatically go to, go to do not disturb the second their working hours like hit. I make sure that everyone is clear on like what is priority one, two, and three. If you're getting through your ones and twos and you always have time for your threes, go for it. Have fun. But I'm not going to give you more priority one work. Yes. I'm going to let you use the time you were given the way you want to. And if you get stuff done early, then like that gives you more time to have more creativity and some yes. freedom, maybe some vacation. Yes. Like that's what I want. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Because I think that it's the whole time you were saying that, that's like, I was questioning in my mind, like, why is self-care always second? Always. <laughs> always. And we can have the best intentions, but we're always wanting to, I think that it's often more so the case of that wanting to do your best and be your best all the time, just like you said, but it, letting it yourself feel okay with accepting that you're not your best today or, or whatever, and maybe just trying again the next day. That's something that I take with me every day and think about. I'm going to need to sit in that for a little bit, but I, <laughs> I appreciate that you are proactive in caring for your people that way. Just to tie two, these two thoughts together, you know, like, you know, Kevin in the beginning was talking about, you know, how when he was entering the, the field, like he was looking at his mom and he, you know, his, version of his thought of design was that it was about creativity. Right. And there obviously is an element to that, but then obviously as like design has gone from lower D to capital D and everyone's hiring it, like it's really important to manage this because if design managers don't manage this right, then it just becomes a factory. Right. And even the, the concept of, you know, Kevin's thought about, you know, really needing to disconnect from each other and, and work like it's all part of that because there does need to be an element there is an element of creativity that, that this isn't just like a you know we're not we're not fat you know designers aren't factory workers you know just sort of you know making steel pipes all day long but if we're not careful about it and you know designers is picking up jira tickets all day long it can kind of turn into that yeah certainly i i know it's probably a cliche at this point but i always go back to the henry ford quote which is the people asked you asked what people wanted, they would have wanted faster horses. Like, I think design problem solvers who don't get enough time to disconnect end up modeling each other because our strongest skill set is detecting patterns and solving for the majority of people's needs. So if all we see are the same needs and the same problems, we will keep applying the same patterns and the same yeah. templates. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, hell yeah. I had an I had an old boss one time that was I worked at a company where there was co-owners, and uh, they were they were complete opposite people, and in most times it were it it was a great partnership uh, because they balance each other out. But there was there was several times where one partner he liked to leave early a few days a week to go to yoga, and the other partner just couldn't get it, couldn't understand it. Like I'm here working, need to be working. And I remember there was a moment where uh, either I can't, I can't remember now, but either I asked a question or, or somehow I heard it. He said that uh, everything I do outside of work helps me do the things that I do at work that much better. And I've never forgotten that. And, and this is exact, kind of exactly kind of where we're going right now. And, and I completely agree with that. And, yep. uh, you know, that's yeah. I think it's important, too. Um, I'll, I'll make a generalization here. Like I think, I think most designers are very empathetic people. They, if they're successful in their career, it's probably because they, they work hard and they care about the people they work with and the people that they're designing for. But I, I do think that that can come sometimes with think, thinking about yourself last. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't, I, you know, I, th I think it is important to have the self be a big part of that. You know I mean? It's just not sustainable be firing all those other cylinders all the time. You want to be a good teammate. You need to have time for yourself. It's just, I don't know. It's just, I think when you're, when you're in the weeds of it, you for, people forget these things, like individuals forget these things. Managers forget these things, you know? Oh, certainly. It's also one of the reasons why I ended up living in the Netherlands. The Northern region of Europe has a very distinct work-life balance culture. So the, uh, the Dutch are kind of famous for it, but I think the Danes are a bit more famous uh, you have the huge, the H-Y-G-G-E, the idea of like joy and balance and simplicity. Like I think 
I always thought, oh, that's a nice concept <laughs> to have. And I would always be, you know, working through jobs. Like I worked my full-time job. I was always teaching either design or, or data science. And then I inevitably would help out my friends to like launch brands or whatever. And I was always doing stuff. And I, I was known for the person who was traveling and never home. And it got to bother me. I was like, okay, so I'm taking vacation. But vacation is just taking me further away from home again. And home can be a source of inspiration and creativity. So I just need to have a lot more home time in my day-to-day life. And when I moved to the Netherlands, they said, get in by 10 a.m., but make sure you leave around 4. And I said, how does anyone get any work done if lunch is an hour long and we're starting the day an hour late and ending it an hour early? They're like, you can still get work done, they said. You can just get work done at home or whenever it makes sense to. Or we're giving you more of your day back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I just love that because I love sunlight. So if I can be home before sunset or if I can, you know, finish work up before sunset and I can get outside, it's the best day for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, that's important to the kind of jobs we have because, you know, it doesn't, the the things we think about or do really doesn't stop at, you know, in the office, you know, um, you know, like to your point earlier, like designers think about problems and sometimes that happens in the shower, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that I notice about designers sometimes is that I think that they, they don't think that that's working. They think they need to like do their full eight, you know, seven or eight hours a day to work. But like, that's why I love what you just said, because, you know, all things considered, you know, people are thinking are going to be thinking about these things at random times or we get a random inspiration. And then they think about this random inspiration, how that relates to this crazy information architecture problem they're working on. Like, it's just not, you know, again, we're not making widgets. So like the, the, these things occupy spaces in our brain for different, different periods of time. It's sometimes random. Hey, Kevin, where does your subconscious deliver your like, uh, ideas to you like because anthony said the shower is a very common one but it sometimes yeah. it's different for everyone like do you have do you do you acknowledge or, or have you noticed where your subconscious delivers things to you yep it's on planes oh that's a good one yeah and i've, I've pinpointed why i think it's because i have no other options mm-hmm. generally like you have to actively give yourself options on a plane like either you've pre-downloaded a movie or you you know play it on the screen in front of you but it's a choice so arguably during takeoff and during a significant portion of the flight you can't do anything else i can't be messaged i can't be pinged i can't be slacked uh you know i'm sitting in a seat i know where i'm going to be there for several hours if i'm you know going cross country or international and that's when i get all my writing done that's when i write all my presentations that's when i've created courses i mean it's my most creative time mm-hmm. all my medium articles are written on planes <laughs> like hands down <laughs> that's cool <laughs> yeah i mean so, yeah. that's that's so true like sometimes nothing beats the what you can do on a even a 45 even a 45 to two hour plane ride the quality of thought you can accomplish in that uh, I'm a I'm a shower person, and uh, I I told my partner I was like, "Can I get a, a, a you know one of those waterproof uh, notepads for the shower?" And she's like, "No, absolutely not. You're not going to work there." And I was like, "But it's not work. I'm just thinking about things." You you want to you want a waterproof whiteboard? Tony? Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> oh man, I'll get you, I'll get you one. We'll find one somewhere. If it's a gift, then oh, have to, if it's a gift, I have to keep it then. We we should get that for like a someone should give someone out there who's listening this should give give that to someone for a white <laughs> elephant present this year. Yeah, swipeies, swipeies, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, well, I know that Tony really wanted to talk about this, so I'm going to bring it up. Like, uh, or Tony, why don't you ask him the question that, that the thing that we were talking about about the style of directing and managing work yeah. in different. In completely different cultures. Yeah, I uh, a friend of mine that I follow on social media just recently posted a couple of things that I thought I found were kind of fascinating, and it was uh, from an article. I'm not certain of the the title of the writer, so I apologize to the writer out there. Um, but the snippet was basically a, a, a screen grab of a, a thought from Tobias Van Schneider, and uh, I, I'm just going to read it real quick. He said. 
it's in the context of, of feed, feedback and growth for, for younger designers. And so it's in the context of feedback uh, on design. And he has this written out here. So a German creative director might say something like this when it comes to feedback. This doesn't look good. Do it again and change X. So very kind of direct and in, in speaking about what needs to change in order to improve. And then there's another one of a Russian creative director, which might say something like, I hate it. Go home. I'll do it myself, which is also very direct, but not maybe the most optimal growth experience. But then uh, he has another example from an American creative director. It says, you're a wonderful and amazing person. We love you and thank you for being you. I don't hate it, but I also don't love it. Please don't tell HR. And that just is like very striking to me. Um because I have traveled uh, like overseas to, to Europe. And so I kind of understand the culture to a little bit of what he's speaking to. And also, and I mean, obviously I live in, in the U S and, and grew up in the U S so I understand the culture here. And so you having kind of gone, you know, shadowed, shadowed both U S and American, like how does, how do you react to that? Like, and, and maybe how, do, how do you position feedback in your, with you and your team? Yeah, this is interesting. I love, there's a couple of stereotypes obviously used in yes. examples, but I love it. <laughs> it's kind of generalized, but yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my background, my mom's whole family is from Liberia, which is a country in West Africa. And my dad's uh, from DC, like for the last nine, 10 generations. So it was a bit of a Southern culture in DC families. So I have like this very strong sense of what like soft, love and also tough love looks like because like the southern influence but also like the very direct like african stereotypical like we will determine your life for you mm-hmm. <laughs> parenting style <laughs> so i've taken from that like an ability to, to kind of walk both lines there's a time and a place for when you need to tell someone hey you're going in the wrong direction you're spinning your wheels you're getting stuck um and there's a time and a place for like i would say guiding nudges Mm-hmm. I'm generally in the guiding nudges direction. I like to remove all personal, you know, effects from feedback. So it's not about you. So it's not about your worth or your skill set or your performance. Um, this is about your execution today. Mm-hmm. Uh, your execution today does not predicate what could be your execution tomorrow. Um, the feedback and the input you're getting probably is all that it takes to change someone's ability to execute differently. So if you make it about them saying that they're an amazing person and they're wonderful, that's not actionable insight. And it's also not helping them change who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're, they need to be more insightful or get more feedback or ask more questions, tell them that. But like the whole idea of saying like things are good or bad, or I like it or dislike it, you know, like your opinion shouldn't be the determinants of success for the product because it, it never will be. So mm-hmm. I'd rather us get people, you know, get out of the room, get people who don't know this product, who don't know this problem, don't know who you and I are, to give it a non-biased judgment. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask questions that I think they're going to ask. And if you don't have the answers for them, my direction will be to go get those answers. Mm-hmm. So that's my, my lens, mostly questions. I like to make people defend their work. I kind of make them feel like it's like an ad agency minus the bad culture of ad agencies. <laughs> Just like explain to me how you got to this conclusion, pitch me in your concept, yeah. have good answers to the questions we, knew, we we know our users are going to ask themselves. And if you are lacking an answer, it's not your fault, but I need you to go get those answers. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. And not to kind of commandeer the, the conversation, but it reminds me of also what you're saying about how you were able to uh, hold your own in conversations at, a, at an early age because of the way that you were brought up. And I think that, like, I, I know that Anthony, you and I have talked about this before, but there's the tactical hard skills of a designer, you know, being able to execute and, and create a thing. But there's also the other side of that, which is being able to articulate and talk about and defend your work, which I think is a, a sticking point for a lot of people. So I, I, you know, and like, also, I went through General Assembly and I know that I think that you have taught at a, at General Assembly. And so it like mm-hmm. looking back on whenever I was there, I didn't have the the worst experience. It was actually really, really good. But I, I wish that, you know, I would have had a teacher kind of challenge me like that uh, whenever I was there, because I think that like, that's very, those are the skills that, that can take a 85% designer to 95% designers. If you're able to speak about it and defend it and, communicate your decisions. I even want to say that it 
using this percentage analogy, I think a designer that has never worked with clients can be better than a lot of designers who are seasoned mm. by their ability to explain their work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I always go back to like, if you recall American math, uh, like in school, you know, if you don't show your work, you get no credit. You can have the perfect outcome. And they're like, well, where's the work? And then they'll actually just not give you credit for any of it. The idea that someone who's amazing can get the amazing result, sure, that's amazing. But if we can't, you can't lead a team to also follow you and set a pattern or a standard for how this design team can execute at the same level. You can't manage that team to execute at the same level that you can. So if we have one amazing tool in the shed, but no one can work with it, is it really amazing? I'd rather someone who can explain their work and be wrong every single day, but gets gets better and has a logical reason for why they do things than someone who's like magically brilliant, but has no process or ability to defend themselves. Hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's a, that's big, you know, like that, you know, it's kind of like the lone, lone wolf thing. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, everyone's different, different type, but I feel the same way. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to manage what the disparity when you're talking about, you know, especially with, with teams, you know, it's different if like you, you know, you, you hire, you know, like that, that tool in the shed to like, you know, work alone and go, you know, on a freelance job or something like that. But when you, when you have people and teams that need to scale and build and grow and all that, I mean, like that's completely different um, story. Yeah. I love that question. It's a really interesting topic for me. I feel like, I don't know if any of you have had this inflection point, but I've gone up and down the tracks of, being full management when I was a consultant managing internal design teams. I've been in agencies. I worked freelance. I went back to being an IC at booking.com for two and a half years. And now I'm back in management and leaving the player coach role behind. And every now and then I think about, you know, for all the amazing work that gets done on a design team, how do we get everyone to do this? And I always go back to the idea of uh, Shopify Helen Tran used to run their team and she talks about how you get an entire team of different illustrators to design the exact same illustration style. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of this like coaching and the ability for everyone to explain how they got to their conclusions so that you can actually shape the way they think about problems the next mm-hmm. time, not shape their design outcomes. Yeah. It's the thought process that changes. Yeah. Helen, Helen's awesome. Yeah, she is. <laughs> I haven't seen her in a long time. I, I last time I saw her, she was stopped by the studio for a drink. But I, I you know, this last, I can't now. I don't know if that was like a year and a half ago or <laughs> or a million years ago. What is time anymore? Time is so weird right now. Time. Yeah. It's been eighty four years. Oh, it's been eighty four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's such a that's such a big thing. You know, like I'm I'm going to comment on something. I don't want anyone to think that I have like a strong opinion either way but i've I've actually been pretty impressed with you know like what some of the the not that not younger in terms of age but earlier to your career like what they can bring to the table immediately versus some of the old fogies like myself that have been around for you know 20 25 years not only that but the adaptability to to work differently i'm always impressed with the designers who are entering the market entering the industry like, if you think about the way we in- we got introduced to design and tech, it was budding. Everyone was guessing. Everyone was kind of very open about the fact that, oh, this is a fad or a wave or a hype. Or, and we all kind of didn't take it as seriously. Now that it's so, let's say, quote unquote, established and people are like, these are the rules and this is what the best designers are and this is what 10x designers are and this is a unicorn like imagine trying to get into design now. It's I, I imagine it's so much more daunting than before. Hmm. We have design personalities now. We have design CEOs now. We have design billionaires now. Um, hmm. And they come in and they have strong opinions and they have reasons for why they they have them and they're ready to defend their work and they're like showing up in DMs with portfolio mm-hmm. PDFs and it's just it's really admired uh, admirable. Kind of along those lines, what would you tell your younger self? your starting 16 year old self, what would you now knowing what you know now, what would you, what advice would you give to your 16 year old self? Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very easy. Uh, do not 
chase drought titles. Mm. What would you? What, Plain and simple. Yeah. What? What is it? What's the? Don't chase drought titles. What do you? What do you look for? What do you chase? I chase teams. Mm. I want to. I would. I almost never make references to sports, but this is a good one. But this is kind of like when. Kobe Bryant switched team switched teams just because of who was on the team he was going to. Mm-hmm. I think the idea is you can be incredible, you can have one incredible person, but if there is a known team that executes, nurtures, grows their people, I will switch out of any industry I have knowledge in into when I don't, just because of the team I get to work with. Mm, yeah. What would you tell your older self? Let's say thirty years from now. Like now. 30 years. 20 years from now. Oh, okay, got it. Um, <laughs> what advice do you give yourself in the future? And put it that way. That's a fun question. Those are hard questions to yeah. ask. My, one of my coaches asked me that the other day. I was like, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> As a concept, you're like, future me. What does future me need to know? And it's like, if I knew that answer, then I would maybe already be future me. But Whoa, I don't that's know. Med, that's meta. okay i have an answer there's a thing that i used to love doing a lot more and i stopped doing it my future stuff i think is gravitating towards it which is there was a pretty big trend i would say about 2008 due to the 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 market collapse so see in the states you couldn't find design jobs so people were hopping around just because you were looking for the first thing you could get and then if something better came along you hopped to that because we all had crazy student loans income was low we were taking on debt and something about that something about getting i don't know it's my third year in the market was 2008 something about joining big companies during that scrappy period taught me a lot about like social norms not really being worth it like, oh, you can't leave a company this soon. You can't ask for a promotion or you mm. you can't do this extra thing or advocate for yourself in front of, you know, like executives. I think it's all bullshit. I think people should just get back to being passionate and like explaining themselves and fighting for what they think is right. And if you don't feel like you belong at a place leaving, mm-hmm. like leave a month in if it's just really bad. Don't stay a year just because it looks good. Looks good for who? Like you being depressed doesn't look good. Damn. Yeah. Like I just go find a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. Usually when something like that happens, the leaving is better for the person too, right? Because it can stunt their ability to find them the thing they really want, you know? Exactly. Like there's a, (laughs) this is not very publicly known. I was hired as the, uh, head of luxury and lifestyle user experience for Hilton. And I left on my 33rd day. So it didn't even hit the PR. Mm-hmm. And it just ultimately came down to the fact that like, it wasn't the right fit for me. Like it wasn't the right fit. I didn't have the resources I needed to, to execute at the level that I wanted to execute at. And I had to decide, decide if I was going to wait for them to possibly restructure and give me what I needed or, or leave. And I wouldn't have moved to Amsterdam if I, if I didn't choose to leave. Uh, and I would say it's probably the best choice I've made in my life. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. I appreciate I mean, that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you can't always just wait on other people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of wish more people thought like that. I mean, and I, you know, to your point, like I think, yeah, people are maybe over indexing on what does that look like on LinkedIn? Right. You know, yeah. they're like, you know, 90 days, but like, that's the reason like, you know, you know, employment is a two way street, right? It's a, it's, it should be a mutually, it should be a mutual agreement. And I think when you, when you know, you know, when you don't, you don't. Right. And you you only have one life to live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really curious. Um, I didn't know actually that you had gone back and forth from like IC to management roles and player coach roles and all that. I think it's really, whenever I meet someone that has a journey like that, it, that's super impressive to me because you also said don't over index on titles because you know, 
the institution says, oh, you start a, you start here and you, you work up your way, your way to like, you know, senior manager, senior director. But I don't think that you have to do that path. Right. No. Do you personally, just, just personally, do you, do you imagine a future for yourself where you continue to choose your own adventure between I, does I see and leadership and management and just kind of, always sort of pick the team or do you or do you think that the path for you is ultimately heading one direction or the other Hmm. the pandemic has made me change my mind on this several times actually um the the panini as we call it (laughs) um like i've i taught data visualization at georgetown i've taught ux at general assembly and also i now teach ux at a boot camp in Amsterdam, the teaching aspect of design, like the idea of like teaching UX, of educating people who are from marketing backgrounds or just any other profession into UX has been super rewarding and like really interesting. It makes me look at the world differently because I'm having to teach somewhat empathy in a certain flavor. And so I've been considering whether or not that's my calling and whether I do that full time. Hmm. Um, And I never thought about that before. On the other hand, there is a large resurgence of like proper career bands at companies for designers. So there's like principal designers and then there's staff designers and there's staff level two and threes. And I'm kind of loving some of these role descriptions and the way that these people are set up to independently create massive impact without having to do P&L and (laughs) direct reporting into you know, like people who have no craft experience. So I don't know. I don't have a clear answer, clear answer for this yet. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, you, you obviously care. I mean, I can just tell just hearing you talk that you care about training people from the things that you said earlier and things you said just now about how you, how you're spending some of your extra time. Do you think that if you were training people on the job, you would still take extra time to teach at in, in design boot camps. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've been, that's really cool. Yeah. I've been in the management role for three and a half years, four years now. And I've taught for half of that. So to me, it's not work. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, that's where the, the confusion for me comes in for this answer because I like to say (laughs) that I don't go to work. I have fun and I get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Um, UX management starts to feel a lot more like work and a lot less like paid fun. Um, But the (laughs) education part feels like pure fun to me. Like I have fun. Yeah. Like I in a four hour class and I'm like, Ooh, yeah, let's go get drinks. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. I, that I appreciate you for doing what you're doing for the community. I mean, the, you know, there's a lot of people that are choosing to go on these alternative paths and um, you know, the industry needs people like you that are willing to, you know, that are not just willing, but enjoy spending time with people like that. That's, that's really cool. I was wondering if maybe you could leave us with just, you know, a final thought on what it is that you're most excited about right now in terms of what you're, working on or like the design industry at large and also what you think your biggest challenge is going to be over the next year. Okay, great. I think my answer for, for them might be the same. (laughs) The world has gone through a joint experience that is going to change how we perceive our needs and our wants. And I would say this is probably the biggest one in the last two lifetimes and it gives us as UX designers and anyone who's working in problem solving a unique opportunity to have a user base that is actively questioning assumptions. I think that's going to be the most exciting you know, environment to launch products in and grow companies in. It's also going to be the most challenging. There's no precedent. There's no 
like we're looking at daily indicators, not, you know, yearly indicators. Mm -hmm. uh, travel was negative 45% on the stock market. And now it's up 200% because all flights domestically were overbooked this month. Like we're seeing massive changes in what people see as like personal requirements for new jobs, for relationships, for their happiness, for their homes. I just think it's a really cool time to, to be, you know, working with people and asking them what they think, and what they need, and just trying to build things that they value. Thanks, Kevin. I, re I really appreciate you making time to hang out with Tony and I and, and chat. I know you, you're traveling and you're in a hotel room and all that, but I <laughs> just couldn't not have you come and, come and chat with us while you were in the States. Thank you for having me. I mean, I've been looking forward to this for a long time and I'm really happy you made this work. Yeah, I you know, um this has been really cool. You got to if you can, you got to come visit us in in Tejas before you you head home. I will I will look at flights. It's going to be it's probably going to be a separate trip that way it's not rushed. Um but I would definitely come down. All right. Awesome. One day soon, I'll see you. Definitely. In uh, why don't you let people know how they can connect with you on the interwebs? Perfect. Yes, I am most active on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is Kevin Hawkins design. Nice and simple. Um, my Twitter is my, I say my fallback and my handle is different. Unfortunately, it's Kevin Hawkins DC. Um, and those are the two best places. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, I do lots of networking on LinkedIn and I host events and stuff there. Uh, Kevin Hawkins design on LinkedIn and also on Clubhouse. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. Hustle is brought to you by FunSize, a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Natalie, a partner and design director at FunSize, and thanks for tuning in.